tonight we are dealing, we are starting with sutra number 2-2, two, two, and we will probably go through 2-3 as well. Um, the first uh, book was Samadhi Padha, and we finished that. Now we're into Sadhana Padha, which is called The Way to Samadhi. Okay, and we did the first sutra, and now we're up to the second sutra in book two. So we're up to 2-2. Two, two. And I'm going to ask you any questions from last November. <laughs> and if you've held them all this time, you get a special prize. Okay. So, um, this second uh, sutra in this book comes right off of the one just before. So it's necessary to, and in the way that Patanjali wrote these, because he wrote them one after the other, he says now, for number two, two, in these ways... Um, our obstacles become minimized. So these ways, to just refresh your memory, referred to number two, one, which is really a, was a super sutra. And it was accepting pain as purification, study of the scriptures and introspection, openness to the divine will and guidance, and acceptance of them. These constitute the practice of yoga. So, in summary... You know, these are the ways in which our obstacles will become minimized. Um, I, I don't need to repeat that whole lesson, but um, acceptance is pain, of pain as the path to purification is a really important one. In other words, recognizing that merely the fact that we struggle and suffer does not mean that we're doing something wrong or that we can pray God to relieve our suffering um, because he won't necessarily relieve our suffering because it's through suffering often that what we need to learn, we have to learn. So he he puts very strongly that we have to really recognize the part that suffering plays in spiritual growth. I've touched on this, and I know I touched on this last time too, that, that essential to success on the spiritual path is understanding karma as, as an impersonal result of cause and effect, and understanding that karma is always fair. And what that means is, is that when we have difficulties, when people around us have difficulties, there is always a balanced, merciful explanation of why that's taking place. And that's why he puts that just right at the beginning. The way to samadhi, the practice of sadhana, is to come to peace with that pain is the part of the process of purification. However, he says, if we accept, once we accept that, and then study of the scriptures and introspection means understanding wise principles and then having the self-awareness and the self-honesty to understand how they apply. Um, in other words, to escape the extraordinarily uh, popular temptation to justify ourselves but rather self-justification, rather to see things as they are. And then having an openness to realize that, that God is trying to tell us something. And so we have to be open enough to understand that God has a plan for us. And then as a secondary step, we have to be willing to accept that plan. Because we may theoretically know that he has a plan for us. We may even actually know what that plan is but then have a resistance to taking it on. Years ago, 
when I uh, was struggling, as I have told you the story many times, but it's very apt here. When I was struggling, I felt to know what God's will was, and Swamiji was very unsympathetic to my struggle. And he told me that, you know, it's very easy to know what God's will is, and I was protesting that it was impossible to know. It was because I did know, but I didn't want to accept it. And so, not wanting to accept it, I pretended that I didn't know. Because as long as I didn't know, I didn't have to really face the real issue there. That's why Patanjali puts them as separate. So, in this sutra, he just simply says, in these ways, our obstacles become minimized. And paradoxically, um, the first of these ways is acceptance of pain as a necessary aspect of purification. But once we accept that, we find that even that pain becomes minimized. Yes? He doesn't, he doesn't say that it, you have to have pain. No, he just says that pain, when it comes, is a necessary part. Exactly right. Very good point. He says here further, if you accept that, then it becomes minimized. And he's going to go on in the, in the sutra after this one, talking about likes and dislikes, attachments and aversions. And then we get into the, the fact of our attachment to pleasure versus pain is a great deal of what defines pain as pain. So, but we don't ever even get to that. Um, Swamiji makes a distinction in something else that he was, I heard him speaking about on a recording. And he was talking about you cannot affirm something as an, as an alternative to acknowledge, affirm a positive attitude as an alternative to acknowledging and accepting the reality of what is. He said too often people are actually afraid to really see what the reality is. And in lieu of actual clear thinking, they'll go into an affirmation. And an affirmation like that is never going to be effective because it's based on fear. It's not based on a courageous facing of things. You courageously see that this is a very difficult situation and I have a lot to overcome. Therefore, I'm going to turn my mind toward the positive in relationship to this. But I know what it is I'm dealing with and I'm not turning away from it in the hope that it'll um, vaporize. I'm turning myself, my attention in a positive direction because that's the best way to deal with what I have seen and accepted. I think of it as if a person had an accident and had half their leg amputated. Um, You can have an extremely positive affirmative attitude. I will learn to walk again. I will be able to do everything I needed to do. I will find the right physical therapist. I will find the right appendage, you know, mechanical appendage, all of those things. But if you just lie in bed and say, I, you know, I have two legs. I have two legs. I am whole. I am well. And never actually look at what it is that you're working with. You'll, you'll never actually overcome it because you have to start with a, a real relationship to it. Then, then what am I going to do? So pain is like that. If, we, if we're frightened of it, if we're averse to it, if we consider it a sign of failure uh, on the spiritual path, then uh, we'll never be able to deal with it properly. So in these ways, our obstacles become minimized. You see the second two relate to the first, which is self-awareness, a study of the scriptures, which is understanding divine law, understanding how that divine law applies to me, yeah, of course, this would come to me because these are the attitudes I need to overcome. 
Or yeah, this would come to me because scriptures say that as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And so therefore it's coming to me. Even if I don't remember, I know it must be true. And then openness to divine will. Hmm. God has put me in this very unusual and uncomfortable position. And now I have to accept it and go forward from there. In these ways, our obstacles will be minimized. And it's, it's very obvious when you run it out like that, you can see that then whatever you face, you'll have tools. You'll be able to handle it. And he promises us, you know, Patanjali is, is describing the process. If you embrace these attitudes that he just described in the previous sutra, then, your ob- it's an interesting phrase, your obstacles will be minimized. And that can mean either that they're minimized in your perception or that they don't even arise, but it really doesn't make any difference which one it is. It's, that's how it's going to be. It's, it doesn't say they'll go away. He doesn't say vaporized. He says minimized. Okay. And uh, so let me just think for a moment. And then Swamiji just talks to us a little bit about the attitude of Ajivan Mukta, which Ajivan Mukta is a nice goal for all of us because here we are in the ego consciousness so we can become freed while living. But the fact that things can happen, but we don't have to identify with their happening. We don't have to feel that, as Master said, that everything that happens to us concerns us personally. That's a, it's a marvelous flow of energy when you really get into it. Because then sometimes people get upset with you or they criticize you or you do something that seemed like such a good idea at the time and it turns out to be such a bad idea. Or you, um, or you thought you were right in what you were doing and then it turns out that everyone else knew that that was a really foolish choice. And so all of these things can happen around you and you can be honest in your relationship to them but you don't have to grab them and hold them. When I was uh, much younger on the spiritual path, I, I used to uh, fall into um, in, in, in intense feelings of frustration and guilt. And I, I despair wasn't my quality, but guilt was a really big one that I'd go into. Whenever I'd make even the smallest mistake, there would just be this enormous sense of... I, guilt is a strange thing, because I don't know what exactly you're guilty about. But there's just this sort of feeling of uh, awfulness. And I would kind of go through these intense feelings of awfulness. And um, that would be my response to, uh, to lack of perfection. There would be a lack of perfection in the way I would express myself. Then I would go through an intense period of feeling awful. And then I would think that I had balanced the scale. Swamiji tried so hard to explain to me that guilt is not an antidote to error. That guilt is just another error. <laughs> and, that it, and he also ex- tried to explain to me that you just make yourself feel bad and think you've actually done something to make yourself better. And I, it was a very, very long time before I could actually capture that and realize that um, the... the intense egoic identification with not being perfect. And that's how Swamiji described it when another of my friends acted out the same cycle. And when he understood her her mood, he, he said, 
How egoic of you. He said, you are so, you, you, you have such an egoic sense of yourself. You have so much pride that you're so shocked that you made a mistake that days later you're still mulling it over all the time. You think that's not what you're doing, but that really is what you're doing. Oh, the error that I made. And like as if the whole cosmos just rises and falls on your one misstep and that it's, it's, it is, as he put it, so shocking to discover that you have a, a, the ability to make an error that you just can't let it go. For so long, it, that just didn't make sense to me. But when I finally got it, and I finally got the fact that, oh, yeah, honest introspection. Oh, yeah, that was, wow, whatever made me think that was a good idea. And now everyone's mad at me. And, well, they should be. <laughs> wow, isn't that interesting? But, but still be able to completely feel no need to justify yourself. Well, of course, the reason they're mad at me is because they didn't really behave properly, and if they had only behaved properly, then I would have been able to do better. And one of the ways that self-justification works is you explain to the other person how they triggered it in you. And so it wasn't really your fault that you responded that way. It was their fault because they triggered it in you. And if they just had their act together, then it never would have happened, right? So you don't do any of that. You just It's just there. But at the same time, you recognize it can just roll through me. And I can look at it, and then, I'll, then, then I really have energy to do something about it. Because I haven't, as Swami said, distracted yourself with guilt. You've actually just looked at it. And, and in its ultimate expression, for the Jivan Mukta, the energy just doesn't attach anywhere. The consequences flow through the universe, but they don't attach to that one ego. It's a, it's a wonderful... A state of awareness to meditate on. What would it feel like to be living my own life but have no personal relationship to it? As Swami Kriyananda's words are ideal. I, Swami, I never identify with Swami Kriyananda. He's an event for which I am responsible. Just think of yourself as an event. Yourself. Your marriage, your relationships, your, you know, your successes, your failures, your talents... All of that, just an event, an event happening around me. When I was a very small child, you remember my telling you, my mother scolded me, and I, I remember going into myself to find the place where I existed and all of this did not. Very yogic as a child. And it's the, the picture that I love to draw now of the wheel with the eternal now in the middle, and we're identified with the one little incarnation here on the rim. But if we're, in, and all of our suffering comes because of our identification with that one little dot on the rim. The more we move toward the superconscious center, the more this happens. We project our energy out to it. But our view is so much bigger. Fascinating, isn't it? Think of my friend uh, when Bella died and she was on her deathbed and she said, to another friend of mine. She said, she saw, I think she said thousands, she said at least hundreds, of faces passing before her. And she knew that all of them at one time or another had been her own. And so the loss of the particular one she was wearing then, you know, was put into perspective. That's just when we become distressed about our own reality, it's very good to go into such a meditation 
How many people have I been? How many incarnations have I had? And how many more do I want? (laughs) And the way we get there is not by this egoic grabbing a hold of the individual events of this one, but by just flowing, letting it be an event. Um, And so I, I guess what I've wondered sometimes in the moment I've sort of noticed the fact that my impulse to feel guilty comes from almost like a desire to remember what I did wrong so I don't do it again because in that moment I don't necessarily know how to fix it going forward in myself because it's something that only arises when a certain set of conditions are there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like it's not something in myself that arises all the time. I'm not relating to a certain situation in the right way and I'm sort of feeding the impulse in myself to feel guilty about it so that when that situation comes up again, I will remember it next time. But guilt, um, it, it, guilt strengthens the ego because it's an exaggerated sense of failure. And it's, a, it, it's too much of an ownership of your weaknesses where Swamiji tells us that Master is pleased when we bring him our successes, but he's more pleased when we bring him our failures. Because in many ways our failures are harder to let go of. So all delusion, all error, comes from too strong an identification with your own egoic self. So guilt, by its very definition, will strengthen that. And will add, you know, shame and uh, senses of inadequacy. It won't, it won't give you a sense of victory. So what is far more effective, I mean many different ways that are effective... But one is an intimacy with God and Guru is, is, wow, did we ever mess up that time? You have to keep better watch over me. You know, you have to remind me a lot sooner because if you leave me alone, this is what happens. And then it's, it's, it's drawing on God's grace instead of just trying to use misplaced ego power to shift the ego because it won't work. It, it, just, it just creates a whole nother level of tension. The mistake comes from a lack of attunement to God, so you want to use every error as an opportunity to strengthen your attunement, not to strengthen your separation. And so you want to feel... What you want to remember is not guilt, but um, that inherently it doesn't feel good to be out of the divine flow. And so what you really want to remember is the feeling of, uh, just the feeling itself. Oh dear, you know, I haven't been your instrument. I haven't, I haven't been in harmony with your will. You, you want to emphasize your relationship with God in all circumstances. But, but that one has to be also, it has to be kindly. You, you, you know, there, you always, we always have friends, I mean we hope we don't have friends, who just understand and even when you've messed up they still love you you can feel it you can call it mother love just like oh dear you poor sap yes you did really make a hash of it didn't you but it can be done in such a way that there's nothing but love in that relationship and that's what you wanted to do you want to feel divine mother with you and oh dear poor sap you really made a mess of it again I trained myself now I'm remembering this I, ha- I have a friend in my life who 
has a strong personality and often did things that were distressing to other people and made mistakes and had an inclination to feel guilty. For some reason, my relationship with that particular woman was just... I just loved her. No matter what she did, I always saw the goodness in her. She could, just couldn't do anything that made me not feel that she was still a wonderful person, even though she behaved at times like a terrible person. But I, I just had this unconditional love for her. So I started treating myself when I made an error as if she had brought the situation to me. And that technique was one... I'd forgotten about that, but I used that quite a lot. When I would make a mistake or do something really dopey, which was a fairly regular occurrence. Um, instead of my falling into the how can I be so stupid, what an idiot you are kind of energy, I would pretend that she had come to me and told me about the situation and it was her, not me. And then I would immediately feel how I would respond to her. And, and then I just literally turned that on me. And I would say to myself, well, you know, this was really not your best day, was it? You know, but, but you've been doing better as a whole. And I guess we're not finished with this. We need to be more attentive. What can we do to keep it in your mind? And I would have this very impersonal conversation with myself as if I were someone else. I would not take what happened to me so personally. But I had to use a mental trick to do it. But it worked great. Because as long as it was her telling me, I knew just how I was supposed to feel. And that's, that's part of how you become impersonal about yourself which is you just see yourself as one of the players on the stage of life not the player on the stage of life which is how we tend to see ourselves is if yes of course there's a few other actors up here but actually <laughs> it's really when I say we I really mean me of course but to really just know that I have a part you know and sometimes I, I do wear the shiny costume and Sometimes I don't, but I'm really just one of the players. So I should treat myself like one of the players, which is that, you know, when I do something really dopey, it does need to be related to, but I should relate to it in such a way that will be helpful, and I can tell that by imagining that someone else did it. And then the guilt doesn't arrive. When my friend makes a mistake, it doesn't occur to me to feel guilty. And that was actually, that was actually a real revelation to me, Wow, if she had done that, I would see no reason for guilt. It was just a, you know, maybe a stupid error, maybe even a slightly malicious error, but it was just an error. So where the whole picture of of guilt and shame and all that looks really peculiar if somebody else is wearing it. It only makes sense when we've got it on, but it doesn't make any more sense, and that's why our friends look at us like, are you crazy? And become very... um, annoyed after a while. Why are you making yourself so miserable? Fair enough. Very good question. Thank you. Okay. Anything else? Swamiji has a paragraph here that that brings to mind a thought that has been in my mind recently, so I want to say it. He just adds, the Bhagavad Gita makes the important point that one cannot get out of karma simply by not acting. Because this is about the Jivan Mukta and how um, he, you know, he's not moving from his own energy, but Swami warns us, you can't just do nothing because, and this is all in the Gita commentary, you know, inaction, action through inaction, and inaction, inaction, and on, on and on. We know those particular verses. 
But he was saying anyone who lives in a body, we breathe, we move, we're always doing something. And so it is necessary, he said, it is necessary, therefore, that we act energetically for the good. It's a very interesting statement. He puts that in there. You have to be very active for God. It's a a very direct statement. I was thinking yesterday, yes, yesterday, I went out to dinner with a friend, and um, what would it have been? It doesn't really matter. But we went out to dinner, and the waiter was eager to clear the table. And there was one more bite of something that I could pick up with my fingers on my plate. And he said, can I take your plate? And I went and I grabbed a little bit and I said, now you can. I mean, I just lifted it up like that. And, and then he took it away. And afterwards I thought, it's so interesting. The habit of behaving energetically has been so drilled into me that I could have just said yes, right? It would just have been easy to say, yeah, now you can take my plate. But it never occurred to me. I swooped down like a helicopter. I grabbed it. I made a huge motion. You know, I'm I'm a dramatic person. But the main thing that I realized about that, which is everything that you do, you should do with energy. Really, no matter how small. Of course, you don't have to do it with... um, You don't have to draw so much attention to yourself. (laughs) That's not really what's meant. But there's no point when it's a good idea not to act energetically. Because you don't get out of action except by acting energetically. And in fact, even in that case, I was acting for the good by making a relationship with a waiter. You know, waiters, it's a fairly thankless job a lot of the time. So there he is trying to clear our plates. So I was just going to add a little entertainment to the conversation. You know, instead of just saying, yes, you can take my plate, I just made a big story out of, yes, you can take it now. And it's a restaurant I visit frequently and a waitress that I know. But here's the rest of it. The best way to get out of ego. This is Swami. I mean, think how unequivocally Swami's writing. And bear in mind, he goes over every word. So it's not like he'll just throw out a sentence like this. The best way to get out of ego without actually realizing what he said The best way to get out of ego is to serve others with love and sensitive attention to their needs. You you have a book that's all these, these pages long, and then right there, this is the best way to do it, to serve others. Now, this came up because I was having a discussion with a friend about their particular progress on the spiritual path and what they feel and what they want out of life and so on, and it occurred to me that um, the lack in this person's reality is that they don't love to serve. That the first, it's not the, the first thing that occurs to them is not, how can I help? And I started thinking back to my own spiritual life, because the subject was Ananda and the relationship with Ananda and all of that. Before I met Swami Kriyananda, among the agonies that I was living with, and I didn't remember this until this conversation came up, was that I had such a desire to serve. It was like it was burning within me. I wanted to help people, but I was too stupid. I didn't know what to, how to help them. You know, I didn't have any wisdom to share. 
Swamiji writes that about that when he wanted to be a playwright. And he really wanted to write plays, but he realized he didn't have anything to share. And he said he sat and stared at Act 1, page 1, and it just remained blank, you know, for days on end, because he didn't know what to say. And gradually he realized he didn't have anything helpful to say, so as he put it, why flood the world with my ignorance? So he just gave up the idea of writing altogether. He wanted to be of help, but he, hadn't, he had no way to help. I felt that way for much of my adolescence, that I, I really had a burning desire to serve, but no wisdom and no opportunity. In fact, one of the things I did just before, just before Master really brought me to an awareness of Ananda, I um, decided that I was inspired by St. Francis, and I decided I wanted to serve the equivalent of the lepers because we didn't have lepers in San Francisco where I was living, as far as I knew. I tried to get a job as a, a nurse's aide in an elder care place, which is a job that's done by highly uneducated people for the most part, often immigrants. It's, just, it's a real entry-level job, and the woman did not want to hire me for that job because I was so clearly not uh, uh, the, the kind of person who takes the job. And I, but I had no... no medical training or any training of any kind. It was the only job I could get. And I wanted to do it in a spirit of Franciscan renunciation. So she did hire me. And uh, the first day, I, my job was to distribute medication to the elder patients, and most of it was tranquilizing medication so that they wouldn't be such a nuisance to the staff, which put me in the, in the first day in a horrible moral dilemma, and I had to quit. I was from um, the hippie world, and I knew a lot about those drugs. And I couldn't do it. And I was just in a state of despair, because who can I help? And how can I help them? And so when I met Swamiji, um, one of the things that was, I mean, I was so magnetized to him, but the second step of that was, he was building a community. And integral to that community was a retreat which meant that the, the, the whole community was oriented toward helping other people. It wasn't just a question of, oh, let's build our home and enjoy it. It's like there was always going to be an open door of trying to help other people. And that was just like, it was, it was perfect. It just couldn't have been more perfect for me because of that um, overwhelming desire to serve. Interestingly, in contrast, I'm talking to this person and trying to sort through some of the confusion that we're working out, and I realize that this person doesn't have a burning desire to serve. And at first, I mean, it was so foreign to me. The first thing I had to do was apologize. Wow, I wonder what that feels like. You know, it just never occurred to me that a person could have spiritual aspirations and not also have a desire to serve. Because they're, they're like this. Then I read tonight. The best way to get out of the ego is to serve others with love and sensitive attention to their needs. So there's a certain point of spiritual development, really, where I think our longing for freedom uh, becomes so intense and our sophistication in understanding how that freedom is going to be attained. 
And this doesn't say that you have to, you know, give satsangs or be a priest or anything like that. It just says serve others with love and sensitive attention to their needs. That means wherever you are. I mean, in a real sense, even though I don't want to make too much of it, you know, that poor waitress was just having her night. And I just wanted to share a little bit of, of fun with her because I know what it's like to do a dull job. And if somebody uh, lightens it up for you, it lightens it up for you. You know, it, just be, it, it becomes a habit that every situation that you're in, you think about, what can I add to this? That'll serve others with love and sensitive attention to their needs. Because that's the best way to get over the ego. Because why? Well, one, you're putting out energy that's not for your own benefit. You're practicing that. And you're practicing noticing that there's someone else in the room besides you. Right? (laughs) Oh yeah, what do you know? I'm not the only one here. When I first, when I was uh, 18, and Vivekananda's book, Vivekananda through his book said to me, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. I honestly thought, what else is there to think about? <laughs> I was just so accustomed to calculating my own advantage. I had a generous nature even then. But still, in every situation, I would always calculate my own position. And fortunately, even those calculations were not so much self-serving. They were more, uh, I don't know how to say it exactly, to have the most fun. I was more concerned with choosing that which I would enjoy the most than I was with keeping my word. And that was a fault I had to overcome later. But nonetheless, I was always aware of where I stood, constantly aware of where I stood. Because what else do you think about? (laughs) Well, eventually you stop. And he said, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. Whoa, what a fascinating idea. Which is, of course, true, which is where the Jivan Mukta comes in. It all happens, but I don't have to take it personally. I can think about what's happening, but I don't have to be calculating my own position in relationship to it. I can just be going with the flow and figuring out what's needed. Because that's the best way to overcome the ego. Okay, questions? Nishkama has a question back there. I think when you attend to the, the needs of others with love, and sensitivity, um, what's happening is you're expanding your own sense of self. That's exactly You may not realize it as such, but that's what you're doing, and that's why it feels so good. Yeah, that's exactly right. Your, your master says, when you can spend as generously for others as you spend, as happily for others as you spend for yourself. I've been in situations sometimes where I think, you know, if I were doing it for myself, this is how I would do it. So if I'm going to do it for them, why would I cut corners? Just because it's not me. And just the thought crosses my mind, oh, I'll buy this cheaper one because it's a gift. But if it was for myself, I'd buy this one. And I think, well, why would I not buy the one that I would buy for myself? You, you have to play all those things out all the time. Who am I? Where, what are the boundaries of my sense of I? That's Master. Again, you come to the Jivan Muktas and the free souls. Master was so much in everybody else's body that he forgot which one he was supposed to move. And he, the stories that Swami tells, he goes and visits that man and afterwards in his shop, he says, oh, his shop was so 
He was seemed so poor, and he had such a, a poor floor. I think I'll put a good floor into his store. Master didn't even know the man. But if it had been Master's shop, he would have fixed the floor. So he'll fix the floor for this man that he's never met, because he is as much me as I am. Now, one has to follow, and this, see, everything goes together. You have to be open to the divine will, and you have to accept that will as it comes. So Master's inclination to buy a new floor for that man in the store, Master's inclination even to go in there and shop, was divinely inspired. Because when he tells the story of going into the home of a, of a relative of a friend or a distant relative and someone had died and he actually brought that person back from the astral world, healed them from death, and then someone asked Master, uh, did God tell you to do it? He said, oh yes, Divine Mother directed me, otherwise I would never have gone into the house. In other words, he didn't go in because there was a connection, a familial connection to the people in the house. He went in because he felt Divine Mother telling him to go. Openness and acceptance of divine will. So we can't just willy-nilly run around buying everybody's stuff. We have to be sensitive to when it's appropriate to do and when it's not. And it's, it's, uh, it's marvelously fun because the opportunity for learning and error is really, really big. <laughs> so something interesting is always happening. Just always happening. And you, you run through these cycles until you get comfortable till you begin to make enough mistakes that you begin to feel what it feels like to be in the beam, in the ray. Okay, did you have a question, Larry? Okay, anyone else? So, then we move on to sutra number 2-3. Patanjali is really fond of these lists. And I'm always interested, he says, there are five obstacles. I, I, I mean... What perception puts it down to these five? But it's fascinating. There are five obstacles, and the obstacles are minimized if we do the things that we talked about. There are five obstacles. Ignorance, egoism, attachments, aversions, and clinging to bodily life. And Swamiji tells us that he's going to deal with ignorance later. And ignorance, of course, means a lack of spiritual awareness, not just a lack of education. He feels like egoism he has covered already in previous uh, lessons. So he really goes uh, big time into attachments and diversions. And he says these are the major obstacles on the spiritual path because they bind us to the ego by defining things in terms of duality. And you know, so many aspects of the spiritual path, like the principles, get really, really simple. There is, in fact, one underlying reality to all of creation. But in order for creation to exist, that one had to vibrate. And as as long as we're in, as long as we're off of center, and we're in the vibrating side of spirit, which is maya, which is the created world, then we're always going to be dealing with these opposites. And the more intensely we're committed to the opposites, in a sense, defines how far away we are from the center. It, it, in, in creation, even at the center, there's going to be a very subtle vibration. As, as Swamiji says, even a master sleeps, you know, and eats, and 
is sometimes at rest, t- takes more, more uh, uh, you know, he, he, there, there's, there's a, a flow, an ebb and flow to his energy. But the ebb and flow is very subtle and it never goes into the extremes that a very tamasic person, a very sensual person would go into. I have often talked about Swami Kriyananda and how, you know, I, I, I never knew him for a sing, to take the entirety of a single day off. He always did something loving and sensitive and serviceful or creative or highly energetic, even the day of and the day after heart surgery, open heart surgery. And when we would go on vacation, as I've commented, he would always say, well, what time will we meet for breakfast? And our, our, our minds would be saying things like 11. <laughs> and he would invariably say 9 <laughs> or 8.30. And then sometimes he would call at 8 and ask if we were ready. You know, it's just like it would never be a collapse. There would always, he always maintained a dynamic energy. He, he didn't allow himself to live in the extremes. He lived very evenly in the center. And then Swamiji, when he says, I like this and I don't like this, he just says, we must begin with the way we view other people because it is other people primarily who affect our emotions. And yoga is above all a matter of calming the feelings because when our feelings get ruffled, they create waves in our consciousness and those waves in our consciousness cause us to feel separate from the calm ocean. Okay? And so, <clears throat> they, when we have these emotional responses also, it increases in us the delusion of our separateness. The ego, moreover, causes the surface movement to whirl our feelings in vortices around our egos. I mean, this is the chakras and the vrittis and the chakras. Our ego takes our feelings and it whirls them around us like this. Isn't that exactly what it feels like? Well, let's talk about guilt. Oh, I did something wrong. I really shouldn't be making these mistakes anymore. Why can't I ever learn? I mean, it's almost a physical phenomenon, isn't it? You can just feel yourself weaving this cocoon around you. Think about a person who's depressed. You know, they'll come into a room and they'll be like this small little tornado of, oh, poor me, I'm so sad, energy. You know, and everybody else is feeling really cheerful and you're just sitting over there in the corner. You've created, I mean, it's not a a positive vortex. You won't even think about it as a dynamic vortex, but it's a very powerful vortex. People who, who walk around in a depressed state if you have any sensitivity, you can just feel it in an instant. And they're just a force. I was in, with a group once, and I, I was insensitive in that case, and I didn't fully appreciate what was going on. But just this one person was in a serious depressed state. You know, whatever they call it, clinically depressed, actually. But, you know, it was just like this vortex. And because that vortex was always spinning like this, it was like there was nothing, no relationships could form because that energy was always whirling like this. And of course, because that energy was always whirling in that way, no relationships could form, which caused the energy to continue to whirl. So he says we must start first, in terms of likes and dislikes, with our relationships to people. 
People arouse these attachments and aversions in us much more powerful, he said, say, than food or scenery. (laughs) So um, we have to learn to accept calmly whatever is. Let me just think about about this for a few more minutes. In Sri Yukteswar's book, The Holy Science, of which I have only understood fragments, but one of the things he really talks about in there is the purification of the heart. Purification of the heart is the calming of the likes and dislikes and the, the compelling, the compulsion our soul exerts over us to put us into proximity and relationship with other people. And this principle also tells us why spiritual community and why satsang is such a, a, a blessing on the spiritual path and why it is not at all incidental to our spiritual progress. And how, you know, the, the, um, the program, so to speak, for self-realization that has been established by Swamiji in the flow of Ananda. You know, he, the, the way Ananda is, is, is a very deliberate creation of Swami Kriyananda's thinking, uh, of his inspiration. I mean, he could have established our community on any lines at all. He was just there by himself at the beginning with people coming, and he, he, he could have laid it out any way at all. He could have laid it out very austerely. He could have laid it out with many rules. He could have kept all social contact to a minimum. He, kept, he could have kept all frivolity out of the story. Um, he, he could have um, discouraged particular relationships like they do in some monasteries. He could have done any of those things. But instead, he created a very uh, family feeling. And when he saw that family feeling in the early 80s, when he saw that family feeling was becoming frozen in a kind of false austerity... He actually left the monastic life himself and got married in order to create a more natural flow of energy in the community. I mean, he did that as a, a deliberate act in order to put the community on the right basis. You know, he's, he had more parties at his house. He invited people over for dinner. When we had holiday events, he would read us P.G. Woodhouse stories. You know, people started acting out plays and he would encourage all of those things. All because we need to have, in all these different ways, these relationships with people, because it is through them that all of these likes and dislikes are brought to the fore. We, we imagine, and this goes back to what he says in the Gita just a sutra or two before, we do not get out of action by doing nothing. And many people have the imaginary thought that well, I don't want to become attached, and therefore I won't become involved. I remember very shortly after I had married David, um, he went away, and he went on a three-week business trip somewhere. And it, it was three weeks seemed like a really, really long time. It was a very high percentage of the time we'd been married at that point, so it just seemed like a really long time. Now I'm gone for two months, and we hardly notice, but that's because two months is a very small percentage of the time that we've had together, but then three weeks was a high percentage. And we do notice, but we don't, we don't mind in the same way. I really minded. And so someone said to me, now you mustn't get attached. 
I looked at him and I said, would I have married him if I wasn't attached to him? I, what a stupid thing to say to me. I mean, of course I care whether he's here or not. It's just like, what is the alternative to that? The alternative to that is to just sort of freeze up inside because true transcendence was not an option. It wasn't like I could be completely open-hearted and detached. What, what he was actually saying to me, and I knew that's what he was saying, pull back. Don't commit yourself quite so deeply. But I knew that wasn't the way to freedom. You know, the way to freedom is to be unafraid and to allow whatever you are to come to the surface and then work through it after that, not out of fear of it to imagine that you can get to inaction through inaction. Do you understand what I mean? So we have to be very fearless in our relationships with people. I mean, at a certain point, Swamiji was talking about this. It was a, a situation he was in, and he, was, uh, he, he wasn't getting the right response from the person he was dealing with. And he said, I'm just more accustomed. He said, I'm, I'm quite accustomed to following my heart, he said. And the person he was talking about, he said, They're just, they just don't know how to do that. They stop, they calculate, they worry, they think, they analyze... Swamiji's just, he he was just unafraid. Whatever the natural flow of his heart was, he would just go with it. He would trust it. He he didn't, wasn't afraid, I'll get attached, I'll get involved, I'll get embarrassed, uh, I'll get rejected. Those are all the likes and dislikes, the aversions and the attractions. You just have to develop that absolute freedom. That I'm here, I'm, I'm part of your life, we're together in this. And this is our reality and it, I remember when I was just a zillion years ago and uh, I was still in college and people were trying to sort out their relationships. I would always say to people, what have you got to lose? You know, if you like someone, what have you got to lose? Just follow it. And it'll either work out or it won't. But you're not going to lose by loving. You will always lose if you don't. But you will never lose if you do. You might not get exactly what you want, and you have to be prepared for the fact this may not work out the way you want it to work out, but you won't lose anything. You know, you'll just give your heart to someone, and you'll have the fun of giving your heart to them. And if they don't respond in exactly the way you want, well, at least you've had the fun of doing it. Likes and dislikes, aversions, fears, it's, it, it, those are the things that just bind us like crazy. I mean, think about it. When I was, my first day at Stanford, yeah, it was the first day. They had this great idea. They'd bring all the 18-year-olds together, many of whom had never been away from home. We'd have all have a week together, and we'd get oriented to the campus before school started. So what you had was you had 18 terrified, I mean, you know, uh, not 18, uh, I don't even remember how many hundreds, of terrified 18-year-olds <laughs> like this. And everyone, we had what I, I actually even wrote a poem about it at the time, you had absolute social gridlock because nobody was going to have the nerve to be the first one, you know, to just move. Hello, <laughs> you know, I want to be your friend. We all, were, we all were just like this. And we were going through the motions. But underneath, it was just like this. And I actually made a decision that I was no, I was no more secure than anyone else. But I was going to pretend that I was. Because I really saw that somebody had to move, you know, somebody had to move in the system. 
So I just moved and started just reaching out. And actually, the, fr- the friends that I did make in college, I made that first day. And I just moved, and all of a sudden, then the whole thing around me could start moving. Just, I acted as if. It was so vivid to me. It's probably why I dislike college so much. It was just so vivid. This is, this is situation is not, this is not a natural world that we're living in. This is not really going to work. Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back and finish. You know, Swamiji um, is just pretty unequivocal. Learn to accept with an even mind whatever comes into your life by giving it to God, especially where pleasure and pain are concerned. He gives us so many examples. Now, just that simple statement is not the same as actually giving you a long list of techniques about how to do it, uh, which uh, are the subject of many other classes. Um, in, when we're dealing with the sutras, you know, this isn't so much a class of how to do all these things as a simple understanding. What, what Patanjali is describing here is the pitfalls. And even the thought in our minds, just to, just to get the basic principle in my mind, this is not going to serve me to dwell on this thought. And he says, when pleasure comes, it's not like you coldly discard it but you accept it with calm gratitude, is how he puts it, and not with a kind of desperate seizing of, oh, finally, finally, somebody loves me. Finally, finally, I have the relationship I've always longed for. Finally, finally, I have my little bitty baby to love, and now somebody really loves me. You know, finally, finally, with all that um, duality, where even in the overemphasis of our enthusiasm, the overemphasis inherently has in it the fact that the opposite also exists. If instead you just calmly and joyfully, I'm just so grateful that God has given me these wonderful opportunities. It would be rude not to feel that way. I'm so grateful that God has given me a life partner. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to serve and raise this child. But I'm grateful to God for giving this to me rather than, I'm grateful for this. You see the difference? When I was involved in a very difficult Ananda project to make Ananda a California city, and it was 18 months of intense controversy, at which point we lost on on one level, and we're going to go to the second level to get it appealed and get it changed, and this tremendous fight. And then Swami decided that we would stop the project, just like that, just bang. And I was just an object in motion like that, and then, boom, it ended. And it ended, you know, without any warning to me for, because there were no telephones and he couldn't tell me. So anyway, it just happened like that. And it was so interesting for me because I'm nothing if not committed when I do something, and I was energetic in my way, completely like that. And then Swamiji, for very good reasons, decided it, was, it had ended. And I had to ask myself, what is it that I'm committed to? And I had become committed to the project, but I realized, of course, what I was committed to was what God wanted me to do. And so that was my primary commitment. That's, and when we're thinking of likes and dislikes, that's our primary gratitude. We're grateful to God at all times for, and then you fill in the blank. And if what God has given you is exceedingly lighthearted, 
and something that is effortless for you to love and enjoy and feels like the fulfillment of some great many incarnations of desires and effort, then be perfectly sincere in that. Don't have any hesitation about giving your heart wholly to the enjoyment of it. That was when my friend said, now don't get attached. Of course I'm attached. You know, of course this means a whole lot to me. I wouldn't bother to do it if it didn't. And I wouldn't be sincere if I pretended that it didn't. It means everything to me. And I'll just be so happy when David gets home. And I was so happy when David got home. But if at any point he had, well, what could happen now? He had died or for some reason something happened and it had to dissolve. And I felt that was what God was giving me. The habit needs to be, I am grateful to God for I'm grateful to God for this really terrible period that's happening in my life. We went through so many difficulties here in the 90s when we were struggling with all the lawsuits that were being directed at us. And it it wasn't a a party that period of time. It was tough because it was just no fun. We were having to deal with icky people. We were having to generate huge amounts of money. We were having to put on hold everything that was creative and enjoyable just to pay for you know, all this mess of litigation. It was just awful. I remember saying to David, thank heaven I've been on the path long enough that this is not the only thing I know. But it had to be done. It was just as simple as that. I'm grateful to God for the chance to go through this icky period because what happens afterwards will be nice by comparison. And I'm grateful to God for the hard things that have happened because everything else is easier compared to that. And just all these different ways you can always turn it if the first phrase is, I'm grateful to God for. And I'm grateful to God for asking me to do something I really don't want to do, for giving me something so unpleasant. You have to be honest. You can't say, oh, this is such a pleasure, being absolutely stone broke and living in my car. You know, that's a hardship. There's no other way to say it. But I'm grateful to God for testing me like this. And I'm grateful to God for showing me that I'm not nearly as strong as I thought I was. You know, many things have happened to me in my life in which, well, wow, I didn't know that I could be that upset. You know, I had an experience where I actually discovered that you can collapse weeping. I didn't know that you could. You can fall on the floor crying. I fell on the floor crying. Wow, that was really something. You know, that was... I'd been on the path a long time and something just broke my heart to such an extent I, I found that I had fallen to the floor weeping. Wow. And all of a sudden you think of how many people in the world and how much they suffer. I'm grateful to God for the opportunity to find out what it feels like. I got sent once to City Hall to try to talk to someone when we first bought this building about the sign out in front. And some bureaucrat with a brain the size of a small peanut and a heart smaller than that, got a hold of me and started telling me what I could and couldn't do. Um, I became enraged, is actually the only way I can describe it. I actually felt, you know, like red-hot energy rising. I, I, I have a really strong feeling about small-minded bureaucrats. Really, really strong feeling. (laughs) Later, I came home and I said, David, 
what were we thinking? You sent me down there alone, like, are we out of our minds? But it was fascinating to me, because I realized lots of people have anger like that. I don't have, as a rule, I don't have a temper like that. I can only think of one other time, and I can't even remember the circumstances when I felt like that. But I felt like that. I felt like I was so angry, I was about to completely lose control. Just because of this bureaucrat, who knows what karma they were touching. You know, the sign in front of our church was an issue, but it was so completely outside of what was actually happening. But wow, it was so unpleasant. But I was deeply grateful to God for showing me, you know, what, what a temper can do to you, what rage can be like, you know, how, how close to being out of control a person can become, even when you don't know it. You know, everything can always be turned. And the more we take every experience that is going to create duality in our way of thinking and try to bring it in to oneness in our way of thinking, I am grateful to God for this very terrible experience. But I'm still grateful to God because through it I will learn this. One of our friends once who was having really one of the most difficult cycles of karma almost that I've ever seen. It was really awful, hitting on all levels. And he just said to Swamiji, you know, what can I do? Why is this happening? Swami's answer was so simple and so wonderful. All karma ends eventually. And so whatever we're going through, we don't have to buy into it to such an extent. We can always just stand in the middle and say everything will end eventually. And where do I want to be at the end of this? Do I want to have spent all my emotional capital in creating a whole second wave after this one is done? Or do I want to have stood as much as possible in the center and let it wash around me? He says, there are five obstacles. He just says, there are five obstacles. Attachment and aversion. It's amazing. So, again, as I say, it's subtle. Because you can't get to action by inaction. You cannot imagine that you are detached because what you have actually done is deaden yourself. You have to feel it, experience it completely, and be centered at the same time by detachment. Very, very different. Marilyn, yes. Is trying to, to get to your center when, like sometimes when I'm really, really upset, um, and then I, I realize that um, I've turned away from God. Always. And so then I get to my center. And then after a while, sometimes right away, a lot of most of the time not, I start to feel better and I can feel God's love again. And so is that, is that the same thing as you're saying is I'm grateful to God for? But you have to work your way back to it. Depends on how far off center you are and what methods work to get you back. Yeah, and then eventually, you're, you're, when, when your consciousness is back, where you're aware of God's presence in your life, then it's easy to see him in all his different forms. If you have dove into a limited expression and have forgotten that there's any other reality, it's being on the, clinging to a little dot on the rim of the wheel instead of being closer to the center where you have more perspective. Yeah. But you said 
um, that we need to experience all of these things. You have to be not afraid to experience. Not afraid to experience. Which is quite different. But hurry back to the center. Well, you experience it. Imagine the tree is as alive in the farthest leaf as it is in the trunk. So we need to experience it, but we experience it from the center all the way out. Tragic, painful, deeply heartbreaking things happen. And they are. They're just simply tragic and painful and deeply heartbreaking. And if we're afraid to realize that pain is part of the process of purification, then we just freeze our energy here and we don't really... We're still afraid of the karma and fear is one of the things that causes karma to return. So we have to just allow it, the whole wave, to go over us but not take it so personally. This is all the threads that I've been weaving today. You know, so I was upset enough at one point in my life to fall on the ground weeping, and I just was. And I was just like, wow, just look at this. And of course, you know, I gradually was able to pull myself back from it, but I, I w- it was more important that I allow the whole experience to happen rather than be afraid of letting that experience happen. And then once I'd been all the way there, when I saw it coming, I could, I could stay centered after that. More, I didn't have to do it a thousand times, but sometimes you do. Everybody I know, well, one of my friends, when she talked to me about her husband died of cancer, she said she was just amazed how the grief would attack her at the most unlikely moments. You know, she would just think she was fine, and then all of a sudden it would just come over her. She just just had to get comfortable with that. Just like, and just be ready for it. Here it comes again. Here it comes again. And uh, one of my other friends whose husband also died, she said, there's a great temptation to be sad. She said, and most of the time, much of the time I stay out of it, and sometimes I can't. And she saw it that way. She saw this wave of sadness would come over her and Sometimes it would just pull her down. Sometimes she could breathe and chant her way through it and not get swept over. But sometimes she just got swept over. And that was just what had to happen. You know, and, and if you're not guilty and freaked out, you just can stay in the center and you can go all the way out to that leaf and then when you're done you can pull your energy back to center. You learn to just ride with it. And, and it's like you, you don't even have... You don't have likes and dislikes about your likes and dislikes. <laughs> you don't have likes and dislikes about your pleasures and your pains. That's where Swamiji, he writes in this, you know, I don't pray for myself and I don't ask things to be different than they are. They just are what they are. Wow, this is a painful period. Look at this. It's very subtle. And it can't be understood just, oh, I've got that and I'll get a hundred on the exam now. It, no, these are just like ideas you just try to take deeply into your spine so that when you're challenged, some part of you will remember. And then what also happens is you have experience and then you say, oh wow, that's what they were talking about. That's what they meant. And you, don't, you can't understand it as a theory, but you kind of get the construct there. I mean, this is Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, which have lasted for millennia, you know, because... 
here it is. The obstacles are attachment and aversion. And you just kind of live with that for a long time. And pretty soon you really begin to see it. Because at first you think, well, gosh, if I don't really enjoy things, you know, and if I don't feel really sad, then I'm not really living. And you just, then you kind of think about it more. And you understand that even-minded and cheerful is not dull. Everybody at first thinks even-minded and cheerful is so dull. Why would I want to be there? But then after a while, it looks real good. But you have to hear it, and then you have to live it. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? The last, um, the last thing that Swami talks about, that Patanjali talks about, is attachment, clinging to bodily life. It's a strange statement, isn't it? Clinging to bodily life. And then Swami talks again about how it's just the way we're made to, to want to hold on to these bodies. In fact, it was very interesting when one of our friends was dying. Um, she, she was uh, not really conscious. And, uh, but there was a certain kind of a, it looked like a physical agitation going on. And the doctor said, Dr. Peter said, it's, it's like the body itself resists giving up. And even when the, he was sort of trying to tell us it wasn't really happening to her so much. It was just the physical body was just going through the struggle of, of having to shut itself down and then being programmed to try to stay active when in fact the life force was trying to get out of it and it was trying to withdraw. And there's even the story of Lahiri Mahashaya when the message was delivered that his body, the term of his body was coming to a close and he shuddered and became very silent for a long time and then was able to so let it be. You know, having a physical body is a great privilege. Uh, having a human body is a great privilege because it's, a, it's a, an opportunity for us to attain God-realization. And we must understand that merely dying does not necessarily take us, is not any, necessarily any advancement You know, when the physical body dies, our consciousness is not suddenly more advanced. I mean, yes, we can complete a physical incarnation with uh, courage and success, and that's a notable landmark. But death is not the success. Death Death is inevitable, but facing death with courage and detachment and spiritual awareness, that can give us a a big karmic victory. And just the whole... um, Clinging to bodily life is also identifying deeply with bodily life and not um, constantly, and this is what Swami is recommending to us, just constantly being aware of the fact that I just live in this body for a period of time. It's just temporary. And uh, whoever I think I am, this is really not who I am. And it's such a fun game to play. People used to play it. There was a, a girl who came to our community many years ago in the early years of Ananda, and she always called herself this unit of consciousness. And she was extremely conscientious about it. She never used a personal pronoun. She always spoke of this unit of consciousness, which, even though she was daffy, uh, there was a certain charm in it, really, that just like, all I am is a unit of consciousness inhabiting this body. And don't be obnoxious to your friends. 
because it's tiresome for them. It's just easier to say, I'm going to the store, instead of saying, this unit of consciousness is going to the store. Do any of the other units need anything? (laughs) We have a simpler language than that. But it is worthwhile to just, to try to wear your body lightly, wear your gender lightly, wear your age lightly. You know, Swamiji would acknowledge his age. You know, this body is really hard to move around. You know, I'm an old man now. He would use the word old man sometimes. But we're not really, and he never was. You could see it in his face. He never really identified with it. Just consider it part of the event that's happening. One of, I, I was looking on the internet of, some of you know Evan Strong, because he lived in our community many years ago. Evan Strong is now in his mid-twenties. Um, a few years ago, he was in a motorcycle accident, and he ended up having his, his leg amputated below the knee. Extremely gifted, powerful athlete. He's now become a Paralympic athlete, and in the Paralympics, he won gold medal in his event, which is snowboarding. And that's what he did before. He was a skateboarder before, now he's a snowboarder. And I mean, he's, he just put it all back together. When he was going into the hospital after the accident, he said to the surgeon, I'm an, I'm an athlete, you've got to save my knee. You can have the bottom part of the leg, <laughs> but not the rest of it. And they managed to save his knee. But he just was showing in this, he's a Wheaties, a Wheaties champion. You know, Wheaties has gotten bigger. And so several of the people they were highlighting in these little vignettes were people who were, have limitations, physical disabilities, or I don't know what the exact word is, challenges, however they say it. But he just showed us his, his artificial leg because he says, he, although he's a relatively slender man, snowboarding, he said, makes him the equivalent of weighing 400 pounds. So he has a, a leg for his snowboarding that is for a huge man. And he just said it so casually. He said, you know, my leg is just part of the equipment I have to get ready before I go out on the slopes. I have my board, I have my foot. <laughs> because that's what I need in, in order to do this. And he talked about when uh, he was lying on the road. after He, he just, a, a block from home, on his motorcycle, a lady was inebriated. She crossed the line, just came like that and shaved his leg like that. He's lying on the road, bleeding out, knowing that he was really close to dying. He just lay there and thought about it. Thought, you know, my body has been smashed and changed in a big way, he could tell. He said, what, what shall I do? Shall I stay in it or shall I go away? And then he said, because he's a really great guy, he said, well, I look at it this way, the costume got torn. He said, the costume was torn, but now I'm going on. I mean, even for an athlete where his body is his reality, costume got torn. It's just, a, it's the more we can continually make that our reality. Just, I live in this body. It's an event for which I'm responsible. I must keep it healthy, fit for God realization. I need to keep it as long as I can keep it because after all, otherwise you have to be a baby and a child and an adolescent. And Swamiji said, you know, by the time you get onto your spiritual path and get Kriya and start meditating, you do not want to throw that away lightly because it's just a long process to get back to here. fraught with danger that you'll just get sucked off into something else you could never be sure so you have a divine obligation to keep it in good working order and to stay in it as long as it's useful you can't just toss it aside but think of it like that I'm going to stay in it as long as it's useful and that's my machine it's one of my tools 
my body is a tool. It's an important tool for my consciousness. But as Swamiji tells us, just as much as you can and as often as you can, just remember, I'm just wearing it. And, and it's so much fun to meditate and just really try to feel yourself completely separate from all the definitions that come with your body. So many definitions come with your body, so many attachments, so many expectations. Just try to feel, who would I be? Who am I without any of these? And it's just so much fun. And then when you come back to it, you have, this, you have a slightly lighter attitude about who you are and what you're doing. And that's where you really want to be. Okay? Any questions or thoughts before we let it go for tonight? It occurred to me today that we need to put on the titles of all of these what the sutras are so that somebody who wants to, to study it can look it up that way. So we're going to start doing that more conscientiously. Okay, thank you all very much for coming. Nice to be back in this book. Thank you. Feeling is mutual.